All right, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome back to the Asian Highway Podcast Network. This is another episode of Erased, your weekly environmental news podcast. Today is June 18th. I'm uh, one of your hosts, Pimo. Welcome back to episode nine. Joining me for another week is our co-host, Dana Miller. Welcome back, Dana. Thank you very much. Happy to be here, as usual. And we'll, we'll have another week without Mary. She'll hopefully be with us back next week to, to go over the news. Uh, this week, we have uh, another set of 10 news items that Dana and I are going to go back and forth on. We'll give you the quick report and a quick discussion of each topic. Live is going to focus on climate and heat, especially because we're entering the summer season. Right now, we're going to start off uh, our first topic. I'll, I'll quickly give you the quick summaries of topics. We're talking about climate change in the West and a heat dome in Arizona, Nevada. From there, we'll move on to another heat wave uh, happening across the most of the United States. Chocolate and coffee supplies being affected by climate crisis. Then we're talking about next talking about insects and carbon footprints. After that, we're going to be talking about a report about reef sharks and skin disease. Uh, and the back half of our episode today is what happened at the G7 summit in Europe and, you know, uh, a green vortex possibly saving America's climate future. Uh, some news about climate and the corporate world. And we'll be wrapping up with uh, drought and the UN, as well as uh, uh, some... Uh, how the pandemic really didn't do much to slow climate change. So that's our, our summary of topics. I'm going to kick off our first topic here real quick, and our first news item. And this is a report from the New York Times. Climate change, the headline of this article is climate change batters the West before summer even begins. And as we all know, summer actually starts this weekend. First official day is June 20th. So we're three days away, two, three days away. So. We kind of touched upon this last episode and Dana, you know, the one thing you had mentioned was Lake Mead. And so Lake Mead is back in this uh, item as well. Temperatures in Arizona, Nevada, uh, where Lake Mead is located, uh, rather the border of those two states. Uh, there's a heat dome and it's, uh, we're, we're, having, we're already having temperatures in uh, triple digits, 115 or so. And doctors are giving warnings uh, that people could get third degree war, uh, third degree third degree burns just from the hot asphalt. Uh, this is, you know, again, we're still in the tail end of spring, and this is already happening. Lake Mead, just so you know, uh, does supply water to 25 million people in three states uh, and portion of Mexico. Water levels at that lake are at their lowest point since the reservoir was filled in the 1930s. The reservoir, just so you know, is also held back by the Hoover Dam, which is named after President Herbert Hoover. And there are farmers in California who are abandoning their crops to save other crops because of water rationing. Uh, beyond this Lake Mead region, there is a energy crisis here in Texas, where I'm located. The power grid here is is being strained because summer came a little early here. This, mind you, following up on what happened uh, five months ago 
when we had the snowstorm here. And this, uh, this climate scientist at UCLA named Daniel Swain had said, we're still a, a long way out from the peak of the wildfire season and the peak of dry season. Things are likely to get worse before they get better. And you know we're always we're always debating what the cause of all this is and why are we having earlier summers and longer summers and why are things happening before the peak of these seasons come? Obviously, we could point to things such as global warming and the burning of fossil fuels, and all this is leading to drought and the drying out of the American West. So, Dana, that's kind of the news summary. Uh, yeah, I mean, I want to get your thoughts on this. Yeah, of course. So severe heat waves pose a challenge for power grids. I think you mentioned this already. Um, and especially if you don't plan for them, as it, as we saw, as you mentioned a few months ago, in the opposite. Um, yeah, rising temperatures can reduce the efficiency of fossil fuel generators, transmission lines, and even solar panels at precisely the moment that demand soars. So it's kind of like the perfect storm. Um and as you kind of uh, touched on before, this week, the Texas power grid was stretched near its limit. Um, electricity demand set a June record, uh, just as several power plants were offline for repairs. Um, and grid operators asked Texans, I'm sure you saw this or, or you know, read it in the paper, to keep their thermostats at 78 degrees just to conserve power. So I'm not sure if you uh, followed that suggestion or that ask from from the government, but that's kind of where we're at, which is a bit I've, of a sad situation. I've, I've been in a weird situation because I, I, I was the past couple of days, I, I've actually been away from my apartment a lot. And so I, I haven't been using my my AC as often as I would have had. I've been working from home in the past couple of days, but you know, I can't, I can't vouch for where I've been visiting. I mean, I've been at the office, I've been at, at, at a few, other locations and uh, they've definitely been cooled. And so I don't know if they've been following that 78 degree guideline. My AC is off right now. I just have a fan running in the background. So I'm trying my best, but you're right, Dana. It's just, uh, it's, 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 I was, I was speaking with somebody here in Austin last night and he was saying, this is the earliest we've had our summer start in Austin, usually mid to late June. It's, it's warm. But it hasn't been as hot as it as it's been this past week. We're talking. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was driving home last night at 10 p.m. from a meeting, and it was 91 degrees at 10 p.m. Um, Same I mean, here in Florida. Yeah, and from what I've been told, that isn't normal for here. I mean, it's it would be like 10 degrees cooler at this time. At this exact time of year, five to 10 degrees cooler. So we're seeing these severe severe heats happening earlier in spring. Uh, you know, before the summer even starts, uh, you know, it used to be like, yeah, in Austin, that the, they say the gates of hell wouldn't open until July. Well, July is mm -hmm. two weeks away, <laughs> and right. we're, we're already having those 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 doors of hell open. So, you know, uh, this is clearly happening, and it's straining the system, as you and I have both mentioned. And you know, uh, we're, we're this this New York Times article I pointed out that you know, people from Montana to Southern California and throughout the West are, are, are suffering from unusually high temperatures. And, you know, 50 million Americans or so are facing heat-related warnings. Uh, record temperatures are already being set or tied in Palm Springs and Salt Lake City and Billings, Montana. So, you know, 
poses a threat for a really terrible fire season. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, maybe next week, uh, depending on how the news cycle uh, plays out, and if Dana's aboard, I know Dana's kind of the, the our in-house resident expert on fire season. So hopefully, not hopefully, uh, assuming that this the the you know the things play out the way they do over the next few weeks, we'll probably have her talking about fires mm-hmm. in episodes. So uh, we're definitely not we're definitely not done with this so sadly we are not uh, yeah so continuing to our next news item and you know we're, we're still talking about heat uh now we're we're we're, we're signing a story here from cnn that's reporting that one-eighth of the u.s population is sweltering under a record-breaking heat dome climate change is making it worse uh, yeah absolutely Dana, so upwards this? yes mm-hmm. upwards of 300 record high temperatures are in jeopardy this week. More than an eighth of the U.S. population, so that's over 40 million people, are on alert across the Western U.S. for a long-lasting, potentially lethal heat wave. So sort of tying into what we were already talking about, um, the heat wave and the exceptional drought in the Southwest are part of a damaging um, feedback loop, loop enhanced by climate change, experts say. The hotter it gets, the drier it gets. The drier it gets, the hotter it gets. Um, extreme weather, um, climate change is loading the weather dice against us, says Catherine uh, Hayhoe, a climate research and the chief scientist for the Nature Conservancy, um, told CNN. Um, and yeah, I, I guess this is just sort of tying into our to our previous news story. But yeah, the Southwest is caught under this heat dome. And on Tuesday, Salt Lake City re- recorded its third consecutive day of triple digit heat. I can't imagine that. Setting both daily and all-time records along the way. Um, the city soared to a high of 107 degrees on Tuesday, tying its all-time record high previously reached in the month of July. And, you know, keeping in mind that Tuesday was, you know, mid, mid-June. So that's a that's a huge um jump. You're talking about <laughs> one month earlier. Exactly. Um, yeah, so the cause is a massive ridge of high pressure, commonly referred to as a heat dome, that's rapidly gaining, gaining strength over the western U.S. A combination of sinking air, clear skies, and lengthy solar radiation will send temperatures as much as 10 to 25 degrees above seasonal values um, in the coming week. And it's responsible for the unrelenting drought, as we've already discussed, it directs rain away from the region. And this story also cites water level again at Lake Mead, uh, which, for, for context, uh, sits about southeast of Las Vegas at the Nevada Arizona border. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm sure again reading from the article 125 degrees. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, 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 you know, we're in the 120s already. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And, the average for this time of year is 106, so we're about 15 degrees higher than the average already pre-summer, mm-hmm. which is crazy. Billings has hit, has hit 105, and their 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 usual is in, is in the high 90s, so they're definitely above average. There's no end in sight, and, that, and that, I think that's what's scary here. Is you know this year it's in the 120s. What's next? 130s next year? 
think we're going to start seeing a shift of where people decide that they're going to live. Yeah, you know, and we were already seeing it with retirees, as we discussed last week. And I think people will start to have to make decisions. Can we live like this from May? Like May was boiling here, but May, June, July, August, September, like, will it go into October? Who knows? Like for the majority of the year, people are going to be living in this, these extreme, you know, these extreme heat. So can they live like that? Or will they have to think about moving elsewhere? Right. And to be fair, and this is pointed out in, in, in the report here, you know, we've always had drought and heat waves and wildfire, you know, and this has been going on pre- you know, previous, you know, prior to, to climate change. What's happening now, and this is what this is what scientists are saying, is yeah. climate change is making these events worse. So it's not it's not the event itself, it's the fact that the events are happening with more frequency and with greater greater impact. Exactly. And so, you know, it's like this is what I was kind of alluding to a few seconds ago. It's only going to get worse, uh, you know, and we're even talking about crazy, things could get so crazy. We'll, we'll have something called a Siberian heat wave. I mean, imagine that Siberia, known for its ice and cold, having a heat wave. Uh, right. Know, so uh, this is where we're at, and it, it's it's pretty sad, and. It, it's to transition this to our, our, our next news item. It's no. <laughs> save the coffee. Yes, yes, it's affecting our chocolate and coffee supplies. So, for those of you who say, why does climate change matter? Well, if you love your coffee and you love your chocolate, you know, you, those supplies are getting disrupted by our climate crisis. This is a report out of The Guardian, which actually does a great job of covering the environment. So, they reported upon this shortage of supplies that are directly hitting the coffee and chocolate supply chains, specifically palm oil imports, which are used um, in, in, in these uh, products, uh, soybeans, uh, which are used for feed uh, for chickens and pigs in, in, the, in the European Union. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about the reason why this is being threatened is because, again, heat and drought, you know, we're talking about drought affecting everything. And a, a, a rare cold snap that helped, I don't know if you remember last year, but France's wine industry in the spring last year had been, had a very, very strong cold snap that, you know, may have been triggered by climate change. Um, and then that is what they're saying is affecting right now, like their coffee and, and chocolate supplies. Right. And, and, when, and scientists are predicting uh, drought will cause uh, a higher risk of agricultural reports overall. I mean, in, in, in the past 25 years, we go back between the 1990s and now, only 7% of agricultural imports were at risk of drought. Mm-hmm. Now, now they're predicting the next 25 years, so between now and 2020, 2045 ish, that 37% of ag- agricultural imports will be threatened by drought. And so, right now, today it's chocolate and coffee. Last year it was wine. If 30% of agricultural crops are threatened in the next 25 years, we're not talking about luxury food items. We're talking about 
bread and butter issues now. I mean, we're not going to have milk and bread and butter and meat and whatever it is that people eat. Daily foods will no longer be on our tables because of drought. Mm -hmm. You know, and we were already talking. Yeah, we were just if I could finish up the end real quick, and I'll pass it off to you. So one more line. Uh, you know, we talked about the last two. I think two items ago, where you know California farmers are, are banning their crops because of drought. So yeah, yeah. So Dana, if you want, kind of want to chime in here on on just kind of what's being threatened and what. Yeah, it, it's interesting because rising temperatures have resulted in in a lot of countries in the EU's growing seasons starting earlier than they used to. Which some would think, oh, that's great. Like your your growing season is starting earlier, but then you have climate change and you have these unpredictable weather patterns. And then these these vines are left un- exposed um, and these Arctic glass hits in the spring and then they destroy these crops. So, you know, I've seen arguments, well, oh, climate change is actually helping. It's it's letting your your growing season start earlier when in, when in reality, you know, climate change and, and global warming, it, it brings unpredictable weather. Right. And, you know, it, 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 it's not just in the EU. It, it's, you know, we, we were talking about imports. I mean, the, e, the EU, for example, imports its coffee from Brazil and Vietnam, for example. And, exactly. And those two countries are highly vulnerable to drought. Mm-hmm. Then you also have heat waves in general that are causing damage to coffee growing. So, you know, the coffee beans are being grown, those fields are being affected by heat waves and also leaf rust fungus. So it's not just the weather. Right. Coffee, cocoa, sugarcane, oil palm. Yeah. Soybeans. Yeah. And then here's an an interesting uh, tidbit. So the EU, for example, is 100% dependent on cocoa imports for its chocolate production. And, you know, the, the, the EU receives a lot of its chocolate production from Indonesia and Malaysia, also from a couple of countries in Africa. And 28% of these imports will be highly vulnerable to some form of climate change or heat impact within the next 30 years. Uh, and that, that includes palm oil and sugar canes, for example. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, today it's, it's wine and chocolate and coffee, which are considered luxury items, so to speak. But you know, by 2050, what else is being added to the list? I mean, to the point where now we can't even consume water. Is that is that when where we're gonna is that what the next extreme is? Quite possibly. I mean, we don't know. And that's to me that if you just read these news items, it appears that that's what we're on pace for. Right. Absolutely. Right. So, you want to add anything else before we move on to our next item? Oh, just it's just a sad world and. It's frustrating. I right? eat my coffee in the morning and I just right. hope things start to improve, especially with this G7 summit that just happened, which we'll get into a little bit later. But yeah, yeah but we're about to do that's about two, three items from now. But right now, let's talk about insects and the protein value of little bugs. This mm-hmm. one is coming out of Insight Climate News. The headline reads protein filled with a low carbon footprint, insects creep up. On the human diet, mm-hmm. we are more and more having a, a diet with insects such as crickets. Dana, have you ever yes. had crickets? I have not. Um, I've definitely eaten things like escargot, rabbits. I've definitely eaten some interesting things. I've never had um, insects, but 
Uh, and entrepreneurs are increasingly turning to insects as a food rich in essential nutrients that can be reared as a, at scale with minimal environmental impact. So that's very interesting. Um, so a new range of smartly packaged seasonings look like the sort of artisanal fare found at a foodie market uh, or upmarket deli, but it has a distinctive ingredient. So ground roasted crickets for these seasonings. Would you ever try that? I, I, I've always debated back and forth. I have not tried it as of yet. I've debated this. There was actually a, just as a tidbit, there was, I don't think the restaurant exists anymore, but there was a, a, a restaurant at Santa Monica Airport over in Southern California. Oh, I think it was called Typhoon, and they served crickets and ants. And I'd been to that restaurant a couple of times, and I, I chickened out <laughs> for factory trying each time I went. Yeah. One day I may actually, you know, toughen up and give it a try, but as of yet, I haven't tried it. So as fears mount over the environmental impact of the agricultural system, similar to what we were just talking about, entrepreneurs are rushing to develop new ways to feed the planet's growing population, which makes sense if we're, you know, humans are destroying our natural habitat and we're not able to feed ourselves the way we normally do, we'll have to think of other ways to, you know, we'll have to think outside of the box. So entrepreneurs are rushing to develop new ways. Insects are rich in protein. They have other essential uh, nutrients and it can help with minimizing environmental impact. Um, so the pace of these early stage investments um, has crawled behind those, um, this, behind that scene in the more glamorous corners of agritech, um, where startups making like plant-based and lab-grown meat, like we've seen with Beyond Meat, which I've tried, which is actually really great. I'm not sure if you've tried it, but those have attracted venture capital as well as public attention, which is great, which is wonderful. Um, you know, be, these companies like Beyond Meat, they're, they're excellent and they don't taste any different from regular meat. Um, and then, so this buzz around insects is definitely growing. It hasn't reached that level yet, but since 2018, it, it's had about 210 million in equity investments, which is not bad. It, you know, we'd love to see this continue on and to keep growing. Um, so the largest flows have been, have been to startups focused on feeding livestock, fish, and pets. So using these insects to feed, you know, your livestock and then your fish and your pets at home, which is very interesting. Yeah, there's actually looks like there's this French French company called Insect that's spelled Y mm -hmm. T. It looks like they're 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 raising more than three hundred fifty million dollars in, in equity and debt, and they're uh, let's see they're they're, they're growing molitors and and buffalo bee, beetle mealworms that um, you know that. Uh, that are used in pet food and fish feeds. You know. I don't know. I don't know if I like, you know what, anything to help the environment. I would definitely try that yeah. if it's good for them and there's no yeah. harm and it, they're yeah. getting their nutrients. Why not? Yeah, for sure. You know, and you know, the, the one thing that was pointed out by, by scientists and uh, food, food analysts is it's not so much the, uh, the insects. It's so much the, the human mindset, you know, we got to get mm -hmm. over our, our negative perceptions of, of insects as food, or as what's the, the phrase that's used in this article, the ick factor, you know, getting over the mm -hmm. ick. But, you know, insects. So I, I can just. Go ahead, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to highlight like what they can replace, which is yeah, interesting because as we were just discussing the last news article, 
insects can replace grains, soybeans, fish and vegetable oils, which is huge in the pellets fed to animals and fish, providing essential proteins and other nutrients. And they can be reared on organic agricultural waste and minimal using minimal amounts of water. So that's, that's pretty huge, especially given our last news topic. Right, right. So, so, Hey, I mean, you never know. We, we, you know, we're talking about food shortages. Maybe, you know, if we don't get our act together and things really do get bad, it it wouldn't be too far down the line when we start seeing insects in our, on our, on our plates and in our diets. So it's probably with a Y insects. Right. Right. (laughs) Right. Well, very interesting. Yeah. So Dana, I'm actually going to ask you to do the next next one as well, because uh, you're kind of a, an expert on this. This is uh, reef sharks. Sad, a little bit of a sad story uh, because it's about uh, reef sharks and skin disease. Uh, mm-hmm. As the headline reads, it's eating into their flesh. So tell us what's happening. Uh, and again, I, I, re- I really want to iterate that you are our in-house shark expert, which is why I think it's great that you talk about this next item. So. What's Thank going- you. So yeah, reef sharks with skin disease may be the latest victims of climate change, which, you know, folks in the shark industry has have known for a while. And, you know, we do need sharks to survive. Sharks maintain our oceans. And if we don't have our oceans, then we don't have human species. So it's, I really encourage everyone to, you know, watch documentaries, do some research on, on sharks in the oceans and and why we need them. But this particular news item, um, surrounds divers in the waters off of Malaysia's, uh, Sipadan Island, um, have long enjoyed, you know, white tip reef sharks, manta rays, turtles. Um, but more recently, um, within the last couple of years, actually, they've come across a much less picturesque site. So sharks with skin lesions on their heads. So it looks like it's this disease is eating into their flesh, which is quite sad. Um, So it appears to be ulcers from fungal infection that has roots in warmer sea temperatures. So, you know, going right back to climate change with warmer sea temperatures is affecting these animals in the water. Um, so immunocompromised conditions can be brought about by changes in the environment, such as temperature, salinity, pH, pollution. So these are all the, the types of things that can affect the ocean, which then affects, um, the sharks, which, you know, affects the ocean, um, in this particular area, in this particular case, it's likely due to the warm water spell that's caused bleaching of the corals, which is again, another really awful thing happening in our oceans. Um, so that's, that's essentially the news article, you know, local divers had started spotting these diseased sharks. I want to say a year or two ago, it's been quite some time that before it's reaching this sort of mainstream media cycle. Um, and recently a, a picture of this shark went viral on social media. So of course, it starts to get a little bit of pickup that way. Um, but we should note that sea surface temperatures around the tropical island has clocked in at 29.5 degrees Celsius. So for my Americans, 85.1 degrees Fahrenheit in May, which is an increase of about two degrees Fahrenheit since 1985, which is 
quite significant if you're thinking of the species that live in the water. Um, so experts say any infection is unlikely to be linked to man-made pollution. Escipidin is fairly far off the coast of Borneo, a large South, uh, Southeast Asian island that is shared by Malaysia. So quite literally, this is, this is not something that a human being is doing directly to that area, but rather something that's happening because of climate change overall, but not necessarily something that somebody's doing directly to that to that specific area in the ocean, if that makes sense. That does make sense, yes. So, so that's that's that, and you know, it's you know, the area does have a no fishing policy within the park boundaries, so it doesn't have anything to do with you know human beings fishing or or destroying the reefs for the sharks or anything like that. So that's just something really notable here in this story. And to just to put a bow on this, you know, we, mm -hmm. it seems like this is our this is our fifth news item, and it, each one has dealt with heat and rising temperatures, and it just shows you that it's not just a California thing; it's not just a Texas thing. This is happening in Malaysia as well, and it's happening in the European Union. I mean, it's happening in Brazil. It's happening all over the world. The, the Earth is little by little. Uh, getting warmer and like you said two degrees it, it may to the average everyday person two degrees might not seem like much but it is a lot it's it's it is significant and we're seeing the effects of the, of, of that change with we're with seeing and we're seeing the effects of that change without even having to do anything directly to an area which is even more sad because you know you'd think these protected areas would be okay but because of the rising temperatures they're not so it's not something that the locals or even tourists are doing directly because we all know tourists can be so destructive especially to a to a natural area but in this case it's literally just because of rising temperatures yep exactly so let's keep this conversation on heat going because uh, the next two items are, are also related to heat, which I'll, I'll, I'll tackle into next. But uh, Dana, thank you for that great report on sharks. It just it's 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 sad that that's happening, and so uh, we'll continue to monitor that as that news item develops. As we know, the G7 summit had just completed. Uh, it started the weekend after our last episode, and here we are today with the G7 summit completing, and. Climate action was one of the major topics at the summit. And there were aggressive talks in general, but one thing that was not aggressively discussed was coal. As you know, coal is a major uh, factor in, in rising climates. President Biden, as we know, was one of the seven major representatives at this uh, meeting of, of world leaders. And, you know, the, the, the group of seven had made a promise to collectively you know, cut emissions in half by 2030, which is nine years from now. And the reason why we need to cut these emissions is to at least try to stem the rapid extinction of animals and plants. And, you know, the G7 had agreed uh, that by next year, they would stop international funding for any coal project that lacked a uh, certain technology to capture mm -hmm. carbon dioxide emissions. And you know you want to decarbonize electricity over the next decade. So these are some of the commitments that are being made. 
you know, and, and for the first time, in, I guess in history, the, the industrialized economies, you know, are, 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 are agreeing to, to slash their emissions again by the end of the decade. It's just interesting because I, I don't know if you remember, but in 2009, developed countries agreed at this summit to contribute $100 billion a year in climate finance, finance to poor countries by 2020. The target was nowhere near met. And they're blaming this in part due to the COVID-19 pandemic. But, you know, to me, that was last year. And you made this commitment in 2009. Right. And here we are 12 years later, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. You know. This is what frustrates me about these, these summits. What are you doing? Well, yeah. And What's this, going on? And this is something China also brought up. China is not part of the G7. And they, the, the leaders in that country had complained like, hey, you know, you're going to have a tough time convincing seven countries trying to convince 200 com uh, countries to, you know, sign on to a, a certain agreement to achieve certain goals. You know, how are you going to do that, especially in places like China that, you know, still use coal? And, and so you have that, but you also have rising global temperatures. You know, uh, reading from this New York Times article, you know, uh, quote, scientists have warned that the world needs to urgently cut emissions if it has any chance to keep average global temperatures from rising above 1.5 degrees Celsius compared with pre-industrial levels. So, you know, we're, we're talking like just to stabilize, we're not talking about the decrease, just to stabilize, we need to make huge cuts in emissions and how are you going to get 200 countries to get on board with that. You know, right. This is I, I do recall in their state, their final statement, they mentioned, you know, that they're reaffirming their, the collective developed countries goal to, to provide that hundred billion a year. And now they're saying, you know, through until 2025. So in four years from now, yeah. you know, do I believe it? No, I don't believe anything that these politicians say. I just, yeah. I've heard it. I've been hearing it for years and years and years. Oh, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. And not enough is being done. And, and it's very frustrating. Coal is the world's dirtiest mm -hmm. major fuel and ending its use is, is seen as a major step by environmentalists, scientists, professionals. Um, and there's just no, there's been nothing delivered on these richer countries that will you know, that's been keeping their promises to help these poor nations cope with climate change, because these are really the countries that are being most affected. And it's quite, yeah. it's just, I've heard it all. It's just all bullshit. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so to your point, I mean, you know, on one end, you know, you have President Biden who reinserted the U.S. back into the, the 2015 Paris Agreement, you know, President Biden making a promise here to cut U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by, by 50% to you know, uh, and then to below 2005 levels by 2030 and mm -hmm. fossil fuel emissions from America's power sector by 2035. So that's a promise you have on one end. But on the other end, you have countries like the United Kingdom who's talking, who their, their, their policy is or their, their promotion is to abandon coal altogether, but burning coal, which is the largest source of carbon dioxide emissions, uh, has uh, is on the rise. I mean, demand for coal is expected to rise by 4.5% this year alone, according to the International Energy Agency. So we're, here we are talking about, you know, abandoning coal, but coal is on the demand. On the demand. 
There's no date set though. This is what just, just kind of perplexes. Like the leaders at this summit failed to set an expiration date for burning coal. Yeah. None. There's no date. What's the date? No, no. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's pretty sad. So let's cut them in half by 2030. Let's do this. Let's do that. You just need to stop it. They need to, to cut, cut off. We need a date. Yeah. Where countries are no longer going to be um, burning coal. We need a date. We do need a date. Uh, Let's now shift over to a feature story that was reported on by The Atlantic. The headline is How the U.S. Made Progress Over Climate Change Without Ever Passing a Bill. The Green Vortex. Yeah. It's a green vortex is saving America's climate future. And so we're talking about, you know, the, the, this article first starts off by citing a 2019 uh, pledge uh, by then President Obama to pass comprehensive climate bill in Congress. That bill never made it through, but then the EPA had made its, had made its own attempts to reduce carbon pollution from power plants. It did not. Then the US joined the Paris Agreement and then we left when President Trump was elected. So this is kind of kind of, <laughs> of, of, of the past few years. And, and so, you know, what does all this have to do with, with a with a green vortex? Well, here are some things I guess I, we, we need to be doing. And this is going to what you said, Dana, about uh, policies like, okay, you know, let's pass a carbon fee or tax, implement some sort of policy that, that forces people to reduce their use of fossil fuels and somehow we're not agreeing to these things we're not committing to these things and 30 so, years now 30 years right and so you know in this past decade then uh which was the third decade in a row that we've quote unquote understood the dangers of climate change but failed to act and you know in that time seas have been rising wildfires have been raging and the earth quote unquote saw its hottest 10 years on record. So this is happening, you know, there was a tor- there was a climate bill in 2009, uh, again, that, you know, President Obama could not pass. That bill, had it went into effect, would have required the United States to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 17% by 2020, so last year, if that bill had been put in play. Yet last year, our emissions were down 21%. So that's kind of weird. You know, a bill that failed had established a goal, and that goal was still exceeded last year, which is weird. And I guess this is what the point of this green vortex is. We're seeing some numbers, despite all the grim stuff we talked about in the first fires items, there are some things that are happening where we're seeing like more renewables and, and a reduction of emissions. Right, electric cars. Right. We're seeing some of these things actually hit. And the question is why? And so, you know, the Atlantic is talking about how companies are actually starting to take some some action on their own. They're learning how to decarbonize. Right. GM, Honda, Volvo, and Jaguar, I believe, have all promised to stop selling gas cars altogether by 2040, right. which is big. That's less than 20 years from now. And that's, that's you know, that's something yeah, better yeah. than a lot of other companies are doing. 
right, you know, shareholders have just forced Exxon to replace 25% of its board with climate conservative activist investors for this right. electric version of the Mustang. Uh, you know, it's interesting. My husband and I, like part of this story, we're talking about this the other day because my parents on our family cottage in Canada, we've had solar energy for 20 years to over 20 years. We've had solar energy, batteries, solar panels on our house. So we've been kind of into this green energy for quite some time, but I noticed that in this article, um, it mentions the cost of solar batteries have declined in the United States, which is incredible because they used to be very expensive. Um, you know, when I talked to my parents the other day and I asked them how much they spent on their solar panels for their cottage and on the batteries, I nearly passed out compared to, you know, what my husband and I spent for our solar panels for our entire home which is, you know, in the city and we have, you know, many rooms and, and a whole house to power. <clears throat> it's actually quite, it's, it's something good to look forward to these lower costs. Yeah. From green energy. And so what, what uh, scholars and engineers and e economists are saying is this is all part of what's called a green vortex. Right. And the green vortex reading from the Atlantic is quote, uh, a policy, it's, how, it's how policy, technology, business, and politics can all work together, lowering the cost of zero carbon energy, building pro-climate coalitions, and speeding up humanity's ability to decarbonize. This, mm -hmm. uh, this is where you, you see some of that political theory or political commentary that says, oh, you know, governments don't need to act, let's leave up the private sector. As, as high in the sky as that, might, uh, that, that line of logic might, might seem, this is one space where we see, you know, while government might be failing in, in establishing goals and creating policies, that others in the private sector are actually stepping up and doing something and that mm -hmm. helping. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I noticed one of them, at, but by a piecemeal bottom up investment and subsidy led approach to driving emissions change. So essentially, the private sector just kind of fueling this themselves. Right, but let, let's not get too uh, complacent because uh, this is just the start. You know, we, we, we still have to do a lot. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, this is a start. This is not the end all be all. Mm -hmm. so, you know, let, let's see how far we can take this and, you know, whether countries could step up, governments could step up and complement what the private sector is doing. You know, because yeah, the country will need to double the pace of its emissions decline over the next decade in order to to get on track, essentially. Right. And, you know, I, as lofty as it is to have a, an electric version of the Mustang, that that in and of itself is not going to be enough. As as great as important it is to do that, we, you and I both know that we need to do more than just build an electric Mustang. So, you know, right. it's, it's tongue in cheek, but also seriously. So. And that's actually a great transition to our, our, our eighth news item here, which is about a climate culture shock. And, you know, this is about, this is going to, we're going to get into, you know, you know, climate change in the private sector. And so Dana, talk to us about kind of how work culture and industries are intertwined with climate culture. Yeah, absolutely. So 
something called the climate culture shock is coming. And in my opinion, it's far too late. I think this should have happened years ago, but in the corporate world, big change starts at the top, as we all know, which means companies will have to shake up their leadership to fulfill their environmental agendas, which is incredible. It means you're hiring new people, varied individuals, people with different skill sets and different you know, instead of one type of person with a certain skill set, you'll hire somebody with a little bit more, you know, of a, an environmental or scientific background as opposed to something else. So I think that this is a great thing, but, um, of course you're, you've been hearing stories about professional workers returning to their offices this summer. Um, and with that comes this sort of environmental and, and climate culture shock, um, and which, which, you know, again, doesn't surprise me, but surprises me that it's coming um, now. So COVID-19 is forcing companies to reckon with company culture. So this is kind of where it's all stemming from. People left the offices last spring. Now they're starting to come back. Um, and now they're sort of reckoning with how they'll address climate change. So the pandemic could have set climate back on the agenda, but instead 2020 records uh, 2020 set records for clean energy de uh, deployment, electric vehicle sales, corporate net zero commitments, and sustainable finance. The global climate is certainly not anti-fragile, but apparently the world's business commitments to improve it were. So essentially what this means is, you know, your employees and just the public are expecting action from these corporations, finally. Um you know, companies are in many ways quite far from being able to engage with the impact their businesses have on the climate, but at least this is sort of coming to fruition. This is coming to the, the boiling point where it's getting to a point where you have to discuss it and you have to start hiring people who have the knowledge to be able to speak on it and to, to change their, their policies, essentially. Right. And in the last in the last time we talked about we talked about Exxon and its board, and uh, I want to bring up a stat that in this article that's uh, was mm -hmm. from you know so there was I guess in 2018 there was a survey of 1,200 board members of the Fortune 500 companies. Yep. These stats are are are, are damning. Uh, they're scary. Barely one percent of these 1,200 board members at Fortune 400 companies had any experience with energy or conservation. Three. Percent had any had any experience uh, in ESG investing, and 0.2 percent had any experience with climate. But then again, right. at, at Exxon, with you know the appointment that shakeup, right, mm -hmm. exactly. So you know, so the numbers are, are are scary, but we're seeing people, you know, we're seeing corporations starting to have a shake of climate qualified board members, right. 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 So, they're so they're, they're as, so as scary as those numbers are, it, it does seem promising. It does seem promising. And it's great that like a company like Bloomberg, surprisingly, I see so many great environmental news stories, which is surprising. This, this particular one is in their Bloomberg green section. Um, so it's just great to see that, you know, these sorts of news articles are making it to the main mainstream media. Um, and I hope that this shakeup of Exxon will force other companies to do the same thing. Right, right. So sure. this would be a, another good transition to our next item now, which is shifting away from the private sector and back to the, the public sector and to specifically the United Nations. 
and share with you a report here that specifically came out of the UN's newsroom. This is uh, from the actual UN chief himself, uh, Secretary General Antonio Guterres, talking about decertification and drought, uh, destabilizing the well-being of 3.2 billion people. That's billion with a B. Mm -hmm. Almost half the world's population. And basically, this is a quote from Guterres himself. Humanity is waging a relentless, self-destructive war in nature. Biodiversity is declining. Greenhouse gas concentrations are rising. And our population can be found from the remotest islands to the highest peaks. We must make peace with nature. And so what Guterres is talking about is defending our greatest ally, and that is land. But land degradation is harming our biodiversity and it's enabling infectious disease, such as COVID-19. And so how do we how do we then reverse all this, right? So mm-hmm. he's talking about restoring land, which he calls a simple and expensive uh, way of addressing the, the issue. A uh, quote that he, he, he said here is restoring degraded land would remove carbon from the atmosphere help vulnerable communities adapt to climate change and could generate extra $1.4 trillion in agricultural production a year. So this is a complete reversal. Like we were talking about greenhouse gases and carbon and food shortages. So defending land and reversing land degradation, according to Guterres, could actually restore jobs. a lot of our environment. So is mm-hmm. it a solution to our, some of our problems? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, land degradation from climate change and the expansion of agriculture, cities and infrastructure. We've always known that this that this is destroying the planet. It undermines the well-being of 3.2 billion people, as um, the UN chief mentioned on Wednesday. But, you know, this isn't something we we don't know. But when you say it like that, when you put that number um, of these individuals, you know, who are mostly in communities that are, you know, dependent on the land. Um, it, it puts it into kind of like a larger perspective, perspective, um, you know, and, and it's an inexpensive, as he said, solution to reversing climate change and to reversing land degradation, um, you know, which is harming biodiversity, enabling these infectious diseases, as you mentioned, and, you know, and it actually fuels jobs, right? When you, when you put people on these, you know, these, these lands need to be restored. That's, that's creating jobs for people. Um, So reversing land production and saving ecosystems is actually contributing to the economy. Right. And, And I just want to point out a stat that right here, 2 billion people still lack access to safe drinking water. And it's 2021. Yes, you know, and, you know, th- this could increase to 3 billion people in the next 20 years, you know, and there's land migrations that will happen. So, you know, there, there's still a lot at risk here. And, you know, we'll, basically what the UN is calling, UN and UNESCO are calling for countries to work together to, you know, basically create a sustainable future for, uh, for fertile lands and increase biodiversity and that way you don't have deserts of 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 of, of, of land that is empty. So, 
Yeah. It's interesting. I think I mentioned a few stories ago that, you know, climate change and the heat waves will cause people to, to migrate also to find different places to live based on, based on the weather conditions. And it's interesting citing the secretariat of the UN convention combat, um, uh, UN convention to combat decertification. Um, she said that by 2030, the phenomenon is likely to cause 135 million people to migrate worldwide by 2030. That's not very far away, and and that makes sense, right? If if something's unlivable or something's you know barely livable, people are going to migrate to different areas of the world. Right, and, and totally, totally. So, which causes you know an instability, conflict. We've seen this with different areas of the world already, where migration is taking place as we as we speak and they're for different reasons such as you know violence and and criminal activity but you know this is causing destabilization of, of different countries already so let's let's finish this episode with one more news item and uh this passes off to you dana this is on quote unquote back to normal the subhead of this vox article says the pandemic did nothing to slow climate change right Talk to us. About yeah, so yeah, so back to normal as people we've probably heard this from our friends, from our family, oh, we're getting back to normal. We're doing this, we're getting back to normal. And I think it's important to note, like if we go back to normal, that's that's catastrophic. And and this Vox article highlights that. So back to normal puts us back on the pack to climb to climate catastrophic. Oh, I can't even speak today. <laughs> Um, so the data is in the pandemic did nothing to slow climate change. You know, I think there was a point where we were seeing numbers um, decline a little bit. So everyone was getting a little bit excited and they're like, oh, great. The earth is kind of regenerating itself. But in reality, um, the COVID-19 pandemic upended daily life so drastically that there was a moment, as I mentioned, that it seemed to me making a, a dent in the climate crisis. And in reality, you know, that's not true. So just for an example, rush hour traffic disappeared. As we all know, we're all working from home. You're working from home still. I'm working from home still. There all are many people who are back to the office or you know, back to their jobs if they weren't able to work from home. But <clears throat> global travel slowed to a crawl. You know, Global travel, I'd say, is still down quite a bit, um, but is picking up, right? Um, the European Union is accepting <clears throat> travelers from America and Canada who are fully vaccinated. Um, so global travel is definitely being picked up again. I wouldn't say it's back to normal numbers. And the resulting economic tailspin sent energy-related pollution plummeting almost 6% globally. So, you know, you, you read that stat and you think, oh, great, wonderful. But this kind of decline in pollution is unprecedented in modern human history. It's as though the emissions output of the entire EU had suddenly disappeared. So it led many to wonder if the COVID-19 crisis would at least give us a little extra time to avert climate emergency. And of course, just based on the, the article, you know, subhead and head, we know that's not true. Um, so we ultimately need to um, cuts that are much larger and sustained longer than the COVID-related shutdowns of 2020, said Ralph Keeling, a geochemist, who measures carbon pollution at Mauna Loa. Um, so essentially what this is sort of saying is that we would need COVID-19 type activity for years and years for it to really 
make a sustained impact on the earth. Yeah. Um, That's you know, so, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was, I was just kind of responding to what you're just saying. I actually want to share something interesting. I, I, I wrote a list yesterday, which is kind of related to this, uh, it's this whole news item. And these are the, you know, talking about being back to normal. I've made a list of things that I have not resumed yet. And they're, they're little personal things. Uh, but this is what, you know, these are things I thought, well, I'm, this is the only way I'll feel 100% normal again. And I'll read you this list. And I, I think you're going to get a good chuckle out of this. So these are things I've yet to resume since the pandemic started. And I will not feel normal in my own life until these things are resumed. And here are those things. Watch a film at a movie theater. Travel outside of North America. Return to a formal office. Be in a formal studio for podcasting. Attend a concert. Attend an NBA game. Attend an NHL game. Attend an MLS game. And attend an NFL game. These are things that I would normally do up through 2019 and I have yet to resume since the pandemic started. And I think it's kind of a personal note to this. I mean, I know it's these are luxuries that I'm talking about here, but our privileges. But it, it's, you know, think about the driving I would have to do to get to a movie theater or the plane I have to fly in to leave the United States or, you know, the the, the consumption of or the use of possible plastics when I go to an NBA game. You know, if I get a bottle of water, for example, the pyrotechnics uh, mm. that might be used at a concert, when I, you know, for fire exhibits, whatever, you know, fireworks. Those things have environmental costs as well. And those are things that as much as I'd like to do these things, I also have to remind myself that these also do come with environmental costs. And, you know, it's one of the things where I don't want to sacrifice these things, but cutting down these things also, like you said, if, you, if, if I cut down on these things and a few more things for years and we all do the same, that's what it's going to take for us to, to maybe do a full 180 and get off this destructive path that we're on, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. that's kind of my personal spin on what you've been reporting on here. So it's interesting, you know, obviously I'm in a similar situation that you are that, you know, there are certain things that I haven't done in a long time, but I think that there are certain things that I'm noticing now with the world Mm -hmm. that I sort of like better. Okay. Um, For example, people are washing their hands more, which I think is fantastic. So there's certain things that, you know, people are washing their hands more. People are, you know, bringing more things from their home out with them so that they don't have to visit as many places, which is great. Um, Just personally and with my own friends and family, I've I've noticed this, that, um, you know, people will bring their own snacks. So they'll bring their own water bottle from their own house to avoid having to go to multiple different places. So I think there's some positive sort of behavioral changes from the pandemic. Um, that is great. Like I think from working from home, a lot of people probably now, you know, won't want to take their car to their garage. So they'll go for a walk or a bike ride. So I feel like we've, we've definitely gained some, some, behavioral changes in people in myself and my friends and my family anyway, um, that is beneficial to the environment. So that that's great. You know, hopefully we'll get back to some of those things and we'll learn how to do some of them in a more environmentally friendly way. Um, I think with this article here, like I can sort of recap some of the ways that, that, um, climate change is accelerating despite the pandemic. Um, 
you know, fossil fuels still rule the economy, as we, we've discussed in our other news stories. Um, the global target, as we discussed, of 1.5 degrees Celsius is almost out of reach, um, as sort of discussed in, in the G7 news article. Um, but, you know, it's interesting, despite all of this, public opinion hasn't changed, which is surprisingly good news. Um, so it says a return to normal doesn't have to mean climate change careens out of control. It's a path governments choose if they continue to subsidize fossil fuels and fail to meet the challenge of investing in renewable infrastructure. So at this point, it, it really is up to the government to make these de decisive um, actions. Yeah, for sure. Well, there, there's there's still a lot to digest, and you know, as we, we we unfold our episodes each week, we'll we'll try to get more and more perspectives and answers uh, from these news reports. But we're we're at our one hour uh, limit or so here for these news items. So Dana, thank you so much for that report and then the others that you did. We we covered a lot of ground here, but I think the common theme is here is that. Uh, Temperatures are rising and it's threatening our livelihoods and uh, action needs to be taken. There are good things that are happening, but we need to do more. I, I think that would be a, a fair way to summarize where we're at right now. Mm -hmm. And so with that, uh, we, you know, this is, uh, you know, I want to uh, cite uh, all the, just one more cite uh, citation of these news sources. So we have talked about stories from the New York Times, CNN, The Guardian, Inside Climate News, the Atlantic, Bloomberg, Vox, and the United Nations. These are our sources for our news items today, and they have quoted their own sources as well. So, uh, so thank you for Dana for all those uh, for for chatting with me on these news items. Thank you. Yeah, and you know, we back. We'll be back with ten more news items next week, and hopefully, we'll have Mary aboard with, uh, with us as well. And hopefully, people like this new this new format we're trying i think we cover quite a bit and we do it in an hour and i think it seems to work for us yes so uh you know to everybody who's listening if if you want to give us feedback you can definitely email me or tweet at me my email here at the asian highway is parimal p-a-r-i-m-a-l at ah1.live so drop me an email or shoot me a tweet uh, my handle is Parimal Rohit, that's P-A-R-I-M-A-L-R-O-H-I-T. And thank you for subscribing and downloading our podcast here. And we hope to have you again next week for episode 10. You can obviously find our podcast on all of our platforms at the iTunes and Google Play and Amazon and iHeartRadio and everywhere else you find your podcasts. Dana, where can we find you? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Dana Stephanie, D-A-N-A-S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E. And I uh, like to share a lot of environmental news, ways that you can contribute to a better future for climate and for your earth. So if you'd like to follow me, go ahead. Excellent. I, I definitely enjoy following you. So thank you for all your posts. And on behalf of everybody here at the Asian Highway Podcast Network, Andy Race. Uh, that includes Dana and Mary and the rest of the team here. This is Pimo signing off, and we'll talk to you next week.